Bibles tonight, please turn to Joshua chapter 1. The first book after the Pentateuch, the first five, the book of Joshua chapter 1. This book is ultimately the story of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. To give him and his descendants a land. Later, after that promise in Genesis in chapter 15, God told Abram that his descendants would be able to enter the land once the sin of the Amorites was complete. So, Israel's entry into the promised land will involve punishment for the sin of the Canaanites, of which the Amorites were a part. By the way, that's the first and foundational answer we can find for the question of how that this bloody conquest and holy war make any sense is that the Canaanites were not a bunch of innocent people that had not sinned. But we'll get to that when the time comes. And of course, um, chapters 13 through 21 are really the, the distribution of the land. We're not going to spend a ton of time and really don't need to uh, picking that apart chapter and verse at a time. That would get pretty tedious. So, uh, But the book of Joshua also is going to detail how Israel plays a role in what is ultimately God's judgment on sin. But... Once the Israelite leaders have finished allocating the formerly Canaanite territory to Israel's tribes, the tone of the book changes. As Daniel Timmer writes, it changes from accomplishment and rest to probation and warning. And so you have the importance of the Abrahamic covenant in the gathering of the land or granting of the land on one side, and then the importance of the Mosaic covenant for keeping it on the other side. We don't know who the author is. We also don't know the date, or I should say the date is uh, unsure. What we do know is that the book was written after Joshua's life, but it contains and preserves sources that go back to his time. So it's, of course, completely reliable. But the time period it covers is the middle 14th century B.C. in Canaan. This is the late Bronze Age. We can divide it into four distinct sections. Chapters 1 through 5 are preparation for entry into the Promised Land. 6 through 12, um, or I'm sorry, 1 through 5 are preparation for entry. 6 through 12 are the entry into Canaan. 13 through 21, alloc- allocating the territories to the tribes. And then 22 to 24, focus on keeping Canaan or focus on the covenant. And really, I would say we can get through Joshua or we'll get through Joshua in uh, maybe three to four months or so. Possessing and keeping the land would only be achieved if Israel lived in complete trust and obedience to the Lord. The conquest of the land was for Israel against the Canaanites. And Yahweh's gift of the land to Israel shows this whole process as a crucial foreshadowing of the fulfillment of God's salvation and judgment in and through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, chapter 1 introduces us uh, to the main characters of the book in order of their importance to the narrative. The Lord is the focus in verses 1 through 9. Joshua in verses 10 through 15. And Israel, of course, in verses 16 through 18. So this isn't going to be a a dry presentation of historical facts. This is a story. There are real people in it and a living God who speaks, who makes promises and keeps them. Do you remember the beginning of the book of Acts? When Luke writes that his gospel... Luke is also the writer of Acts, had covered the things that Jesus began to do 
and teach. That's how he describes Acts. The Acts of the Apostles are simply the continuation of Jesus doing his ministry from heaven on earth through them. Chad Bird says that if the New Testament is the inspired and inscripturated commentary on the Old Testament, then beginning with Joshua, we, we are reading the inspired and inscripturated commentary on the Torah. So out of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, comes everything from Genesis um, or from Joshua to Revelation. And what the Jews called the Tanakh, that's an acronym made from the first Hebrew letter of each of the Hebrew Scriptures traditional divisions. You have the Torah, or really you're supposed to say it Torah. I just don't have the, the guts to do that because we've all said Torah all our lives and you just sound like a cheese ball if you get too technical. But Torah is the law. All right. Nevi'im is the prophets. Kedavim is the writings. That's the acronym Tanakh. Uh, every author of the Tanakh learned from the Rabbi Moses. This book is the continuation of the ministry of Moses in and through Joshua. The book of Joshua emphasizes God's power and commitment to keep His Word even in the midst of our sinfulness. Not one word fails. Not one word falls. This God has been and ever will be for His people. This is maybe the main point of all Scripture is to tell us that God keeps His promises. The Lord commands Joshua here in chapter 1 to boldly take the people into the promised land as he assumes command of Israel. And this command, it's repeated here, to be strong and courageous, to take what God has promised, is a command to trust in Him rather than anything else. So let's pray and we'll get into it here. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for what You've revealed to us that we might know and have in our hearts about You and about your mercy and about how you are relentless to keep your promise of salvation to your wayward people. Lord, be with us as we begin this study. Open our hearts to receive the truth of Joshua. Give me insight that I might understand it as we go, that I might be able to preach it clearly and concisely in a way that all might understand. Oh God, help me to that end. Help me think. Help me understand. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts and minds of your people this night as we consider this first chapter of this book. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me go ahead and read Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. That's funny. They hadn't done that at all, had they? Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So, Two themes immediately emerge here in Joshua. That the land is the gift of God. It's the fulfillment of a promise. And yet the people are commanded to take hold of that gift. The first thing God does is to encourage the new leader of his people, this man named Joshua. Notice first that the strength of God's promise here in just these first four verses. The content of the promise is the gift of the land. And as Genesis 15:18, Deuteronomy 1:7, Deuteronomy 11:24 tell us and here the eastern boundary of this land is the Euphrates River which runs from modern-day Turkey through Syria and Iraq, joins the Tigris River and then eventually empties into the Persian Gulf. This is the promise God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and following. The book of Joshua is rooted in Genesis and everything that came after that to this Moment That promise is about to see in the Bible its fulfillment. God's gift of it, that is. But the context of the promise in Joshua is the death of the great man Moses. Look at verse 2 again. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. To understand how significant this was, we have to remember the greatness and the importance of Moses. If you remember way back in Exodus 32 to 34, the entire nation of Israel was about an inch away from annihilation for worshiping the golden calf. God was going to utterly destroy them. Exodus 33 seems to imply that Moses was the only Israelite actually in covenant fellowship with the Lord and he interceded for them and God relented as the mediator, he said, my destiny will be whatever the destiny of this people is. Moses got his revelation directly from the Lord himself. In fact, the last words of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, before we come to Joshua, are this. Listen to Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. 
And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There was no one like Moses. In fact, there was none greater than Moses until the one greater than Moses finally came, the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Israel, as the book of Joshua opens, the great one, their leader, that has been with them since Egypt is dead. They didn't expect him to not be going into the promised land with them. They knew his death was going to happen at some point. They had expected it. We know that from Deuteronomy. But what do you actually do when the servant of God that's leading you dies? And now there's this massive raging river, by the way, in between you and the land that God has promised you. Everything the first five books of the Bible had been preparing the people of Israel for ends in a funeral. Ends in the death of Moses. Many of us might know a feeling like this. When we believe God's promise, but we have no idea what step we're supposed to take next. But notice how God speaks. Yes, Moses is dead, but God's promise lives. Notice how it doesn't read. Moses, my servant, has died, so let's hold on until I figure out what to do next. No. Moses, my servant, has died, so you'll have to wait. You know, I, I need to take care of some things, get yourselves together, and then we'll move. No, no, no. Verse 2, Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, take the land I have given you. Get up and get moving. Moses is dead, but the promise is not. An era is over, but the promise endures. Beloved, God's commitment to His promise and His integrity in keeping it do not hinge on our achievements, our abilities, our status, or however gifted we might be. Dale Ralph Davis writes that Yahweh's fidelity does not evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. Chapter 1 also emphasizes the encouragement that comes from God's promise of His presence with Joshua and the people. Don't forget these same words. Don't be afraid. Go do what I said. We're spoken to a backwards, self-doubting, excuse-making shepherd named Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. God promised to be with him when he sent him to Pharaoh. This same God now reaffirms that promise to Joshua. I haven't left. God is always with his servants. They're never expected to accomplish anything on their own. The, the, the prospect of facing Pharaoh was scary enough, but facing the entire territory of the Canaanites, and listen, we don't have time to get into it tonight, but the Canaanites, by and large, were some terrifying people. Some terrifying people. There's remnants of the giants of the Nephilim in the people of Canaan. This is a, not a, a pushover people. These are a warring people. They had horses and chariots. Israel didn't have those things. So this is a daunting task. The great Moses that can do such great things is dead. The whole generation that came through the Red Sea other than Caleb and Joshua is dead. These people haven't seen all that. They've heard about it. And now they are the ones that will take the land of Canaan. But Yahweh hasn't changed. 
he will be present with his servant and his people to help them. That's why God tells Joshua in 6 and 7 and 9, be strong and courageous. Why? Well, the only basis for Joshua's strength is that Yahweh is with him. Be strong and courageous to believe that when what you want to do is depend on yourself. When what you're tempted to do is to think that you have to help, that God also needs your strength. He's not being told here to come up with all this courage. He's being told to be courageous because the Lord has promised to be with him. We don't take heart in what God has made us, but in who God is for us. The promise of assurance is going to appear all throughout the book of Joshua. And that's, we might say, well, that's all well and good for Joshua, but he was a special case. He had to lead all of Israel. What about a plain Christian like me, just living everyday life in the Ohio Valley, in Moundsville, in Glendale, wherever it is? Is, is this promise for us too? Beloved, do you know how this very promise, I will not leave you or forsake you, is brought forward for us in light of God's salvation for us now in Christ. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 read, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There's another kind of Canaanite. The lure of money and riches. For he has said, I will never fail you nor forsake you. Hence we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The promise of Joshua 1.5 is applied directly to Christian congregations in the book of Hebrews. Word for word, He will also just as much be with you in the midst of everyday life when what you're trying to deal with is the lure of money and the lack of contentment. You are never alone, ever. This same divine Canaanite defeating promise is the only solution to covetousness also. To discontent, only in God's promise can we live a life free from fear, no matter what it is that we're facing. The most important thing Christians can hear is God saying to us over and over, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. A third thing we notice in chapter 1 is the centrality of God's Word. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. How can Israel be expected to obey all that was written? By meditating on the Word. By listening. And don't think of meditation on God's Word as you normally might think of meditating. Closing your eyes, being very quiet like a a Far Eastern idea. Thinking about something, trying to think about it very hard. Meditating in the Hebrew sense of the word is actually mutter. That's really what it means to meditate, is to speak the word. Mutter the Torah, God is saying to them, every single day. Say the words of God. Preach to yourself. It is the constant absorbing, uh, absorbing and proclaiming of the word that keeps us faithful. This same exhortation will come again at the end of Joshua in chapters 22 and 23. But here the command is given specifically to the new leader, to Joshua. If you wanted to say that technically this command was given to him and so the everyday Christian uh, doesn't have to be as careful as a great leader of God's people, 
what would you say to a text like Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, which describes the godly believer in general as one who meditates on his law day and night, muttering it to himself, speaking it constantly. Quoting D.R. Davis again, life in the kingdom of God must be lived out of the word of God. And so we come to this idea again, and I, I cannot stress the importance of this enough. We do not rely on personal experiences for our faith, our confidence, or our assurance. We do not get such a thing from within ourselves. I know God is with me because this thing happened to me years ago. I'm not denying that those things happen to believers, not at all. What I'm telling you is they are not for our assurance. We look to the objective Word of God. We don't rely on personal experiences. We don't rely on mysticism or trendy new ideas and books. We meditate on, we speak, we remember the Word God has already spoken to us in His promise, and we believe it. Nothing like an experience that makes us feel assurance. And I understand that happens, right? You just have a, a great experience and it really solidifies things for you. Those don't become an addition to a replacement for the promise. That, that's, that's not what they're for, so that we have something personal we can rely on. That we might be able to say, you know, um, well, not only do I have the Bible, but I have this thing that happened to me. No, you, you have the promise. Because it doesn't change, it doesn't move, it doesn't get fuzzy in your memory when you're meditating on it. Right? That's the key. We remember what's already been spoken. And that is true strength. That is true courage, as God defines it. Faith. Faith. Lastly, notice the unity of God's people. Here in verses 12 through 18. We would do well here to remember Numbers 32. The reason uh, these tribes here are called out. Uh, the, the tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of, Man- of Manasseh. Why can't I say that tonight? I keep stumbling every time I go to say that. But remember, when the two and a half tribes, those two and a half tribes requested Moses back in Numbers, to assign them an inheritance on the east side of the Jordan before they got into the Promised Land. He, uh, Moses thought they had something up their sleeve, right? That uh, they, they, apart from God's promise, he called them a brood of sinful men in Numbers 32 and 14. That if, if they do that, they won't be there to help the Israelites enter Canaan. They won't be there. That strength and those numbers won't be there. He thought they wanted to sit out the taking of Canaan and just give us this spot. We'll take this spot. This would leave the other tribes high and dry without their help. What you see here is the unity of God's people becomes even more crucial as we see how much rebellion against God can hurt the entire body, the entire camp. This is why the unity of the people here in Joshua 1 is so critical. Right here, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh are willingly obedient. It's it's an affirmation of the fact that they will be with them. They're instruments of encouragement now for the sake of the people as they get ready to enter. There's something to take from that regarding the unity of the church in our day. We, we, We don't have to have the warm fuzzies all the time when we're together. But we do need to care enough for each other that we don't want any one of us to get discouraged 
or to feel alone. It's just it's it's a it's a precarious place for a believer to be. Even in our public meetings like this, according to Hebrews 10:25, we need each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Right? It's it's interesting. You, you can't really take Hebrews 10:25, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together and kind of apply it to our churches now apples to apples um, by saying that look we decided we're going to have three services a week and so you need to be at all three don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together I don't know that you can do that Um, the early church didn't meet three times a week like that Um, so I, I don't say this because I want to I don't know why precisely why is the Sunday evening or Wednesday night crowd is much less than Sunday morning I mean there's I mean, I suppose there's earthly reasons for that, I, I, you know. I, but I mean, we want to be merciful, right? Because, for example, if you work a 60, you know, 50 whatever hour week, and Sunday's the only time you have with your family, and or to do things like that, then maybe consistent attendance is harder. And I don't, I don't want to make light of that. I don't know why people don't come or show up as much, and so I want to be very careful to say that because what I'm about to say is not even really anything to do with the people in our church that don't always come. Okay, I hope that's clear. What I'm saying is this. We are going to need as much of each other as we can get the harder the days get. Okay? In other words, we may need to make a greater priority of meeting together. And nor do I want to downplay the importance of coming to church and being with your brothers and sisters. But I don't know that because we've not suffered so much in America as the church or for the sake of the gospel, we don't necessarily value or see the value in this, in gathering together, whether it's here or in a home. And I I think that what pressure will do, um, because how often we can meet may be altered by the government. Uh, They tried to do that for over a year with COVID, and it worked in most places. They scared us to death, and we bought it. Okay, and I'm not going to get into all that tonight, but we bought it, hook, line, and sinker, and lived in absolute terror and fear for basically no reason for over a year. So this will become much more valuable, unfortunately, the more we realize that we need each other. And in a, in a place like America where we have so much and so much is readily available and there's so much to do, right? There's so much to do. We don't really recognize the value of this but we will and we need to and again I don't know sure it could just be I don't want to go to church sure that could be it but there could also be very legitimate reasons people can't come so I don't want to again I don't want to throw them under the bus but at the same time I don't want to speak as though we can just treat church attendance willy nilly we really do need each other all the more as we see the day approaching. That's literally built into the Word. If, if, it, it's funny how everybody wants to be able to recognize the end times and what's going on and all the symbols and what's happening, but they completely ignore Hebrews 10.25. People have been saying that we're right on the verge of Christ returning since I was a little boy. Has church attendance gone up or gone down? Right? How come that doesn't go? It's, it's like there's this thrill in figuring everything out, but there is no thrill in gathering together with the saints. Why don't, what's off in our end times theology that we don't, that we ignore clear texts 
like Hebrews 10.25, that all the more as you see the day approaching, you should be together more. And it's like we get further apart. Don't worry about figuring out who the Antichrist is in the last day. Take care of the people who are right in front of you. That is how we faithfully watch and wait. That is strength. That is courage. And let us also be careful to do this because unity precedes fidelity. We'll see that in the text, but we're much more likely to glorify God with our lives when we have genuine unity with one another. So, Moses has died, but Yahweh has not abandoned Israel. And beloved, Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago. We've been waiting. He has not abandoned us. He hasn't. We still have God's presence. We have God's word. And we have God's people. Be strong and courageous, he says. Why? Because your army is better than all that of the Canaanites? Because you have more soldiers than they do? No. England learned the danger of trying to defeat a country across the ocean with an embedded militia, right? And guerrilla warfare. They learn the danger of invading people that know the land and the terrain. And we won the Revolutionary War. The Canaanites are dug in in Canaan. This is a second generation of people out from you know, Egypt that haven't fought too many wars. And the Canaanites live and breathe war and blood and all of this. And he says, be strong and courageous because the Lord your God will be with you. That is the only promise we need for strength and courage. It's a call for faith. That's what it is. That's what it is. Be strong and courageous to believe the promise of the Lord rather than trusting yourself or your circumstances or looking at your enemies and your opponents and weighing out the pros and the cons. Be strong and courageous because I'm going to be with you. Trust in me instead. Notice one last thing here at the end of this chapter in verse 16 to 18. I mentioned this a little bit ago. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So I have no doubt that they meant it. This is a a very exciting moment for Israel. It's an upbeat moment. But they're forgetting the history. They most certainly did not obey Moses in everything. Moses isn't in the promised land with them because they were so rebellious and frustrating and stubborn. So it's, it's it doesn't bode well that they're this self-reliant. And so self-reliance is not the goal here. That, that's, that's not what God is saying when He says be strong and courageous. They will most certainly break this promise. They'll take most of the land in the book of Joshua. The Bible never tells us that Israel fully drove out the Canaanites. Fully drove out everyone. They never fully took possession of the land and they broke the covenant and lost it, all of it. 
by the time Jesus comes, they're an occupied nation by a foreign pagan force. Do not have confidence in yourself. And think about precisely what Paul says in Romans in that section in 9-11. through Why didn't Israel get what was promised? Because they sought it by their own works. They sought to become righteous on their own. And that's the root of all their problems and the loss of what could have been theirs. You have God's presence this night. You have God's word. You have God's people. And God would say, be strong and courageous to actually look away from yourself and your own strength and abilities and have faith in God and God alone. In light of the promise God has made to us in Christ, we are safe, beloved. We are safe. It is going to be okay. And it doesn't matter what happens. And stuff is going to happen. And a lot of it will be very scary, whether we're here when it all comes about or not. But we're safe. We're safe. We are called to trust in Him, in Jesus, as He takes us, our conqueror who does all the fighting and winning, into the new heavens and the new earth, the fulfillment of the promised land on earth, as He conquers our enemies, to meditate on His Word, to know it, to speak it even to ourselves. This is what we're called to. We're called to true courage and true strength, which is faith in our promise-keeping God. Trust in Him rather than anything else. He will keep His Word to you as He always has. Beloved, rest in Christ.